Pray to us, O Lord, a faith that will not let you go, a hope that rests surely on the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a joy in knowing that Christ has been raised to life and that death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to you, O Lord, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I recently watched a show on SBS TV called Christians Like Us. The whole point of the show was not to present a diversity of expression amidst a unity in Christ, but rather a disunity of opinion amidst a diversity in just about everything. One of the participants made a comment that took my attention. She said that the Bible shouldn't be understood as a historical account of anything. Instead, she said, it should be read as you would read a book of poetry. Not entirely fictional, but altogether metaphorical. Not, in, not designed to inform, but to inspire. Beautifully eloquent, but clumsy to teach. Now, we know what poetry is, and the meaning of metaphor and parable, and simile and prose. We recognise that Lebanon doesn't actually skip like a calf, and that God didn't actually carry Israel, on his, carry Israel on eagle's wings. And we know these things not because we're particularly clever, but simply because we recognise how language works. And so when we read the Gospel narratives of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's nothing about them to suggest that they're in any way poetic. On the contrary, everything about them reads as it was written. This is an accurate and historical account of what actually happened. You could only think otherwise if you hadn't actually read the Gospels, let alone the Bible. For what's clear is that the Gospels are not written in the genre of religious myth, offering clues to the potentiality of human life. In the Gospels, we read of real people with real names. There's Peter and John and Mary Magdalene, and they're running, they're speaking, they're weeping and embracing. John's account of the resurrection doesn't happen once upon a time, but on the first day of the week in the year AD 33. And it doesn't happen in a magical mystery land far, far away. It happens at the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea near Jerusalem. So the Gospel accounts are not poetic, they're historical. They're not fictional, they're factual. Fictional accounts designed for merely ideological reasons, well, they don't care for names and details. And nor do they include the unnecessary and the improbable. And that's what the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are. They're highly improbable. You see, they're all women. And if you're making this story up in first century Palestine, you certainly don't invent women to be your first eyewitnesses. For their testimony at the time counted for half that of a man. Making up a story like that doesn't make it seem more credible, but less. You just wouldn't say it, unless it was true. So too, if you want to say that Peter and John went to the empty tomb, then why add details about a race and one overtaking the other? It adds absolutely nothing to the story, unless, of course, it's true. 
But it's not just the small details in the story that make it authentic. There is, of course, the huge claim that the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then where's his body? Perhaps the apostles, overpowered and armed and trained Roman soldiers, perhaps they stole the body and hid it, never to be found again. Perhaps they then lied about Jesus rising from the dead and then readily accepted martyrdom for what they knew was a lie. Now, sometimes the apostles were brave, but they were never stupid. And as for the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans taking the body and hiding it, well, that makes even less sense. They don't want people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said he would. That would have caused all sorts of problems for them, and it did. To quickly squash the rumours, all they needed done was produce the body. But they didn't, because they couldn't. Jesus had risen. So the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is compelling and overwhelming. Nevertheless, some would still want to argue that perhaps the apostles were hallucinating. Perhaps they truly just wanted to believe in the resurrection so much that they convinced themselves that it was true and believed the delusion. Now, for this to be a reason to doubt the resurrection accounts, we would need to assume that all of them were simultaneously deluded, as well as hundreds of others who had seen Jesus, and that someone who looked and talked like Jesus, had the same crucifixion wounds as Jesus, would have breakfast with them on the beach. And then this imposter would then have to keep up the charade for 40 days, and then fake an ascension into heaven right before their very eyes. Seems to me that to hold to such a position, you would really have to want to disbelieve the resurrection, despite all the evidence. And a self-delusion seems like a sad way to avoid the reality of the resurrection. Perhaps worse than that is the denial of the resurrection that claims to be self-aware and super-spiritual. Whether or not Christ's body left the tomb, they say, well, it doesn't really matter. What matters, they say, is that if you believe that Christ has risen, then he has risen in your heart. What matters is faith itself, rather than any claim to truth, albeit physical, historical and verifiable. Such an account of the resurrection, however, is not sad, it's sinister. And it's sinister because it claims to be Christian and all the while denies the very foundation of the Christian faith. As the Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is futile because we're still in our sins. If Christ's spirit supposedly rises in our hearts but his body remains in the grave, then so too shall our body remain in the grave. We shall have a false hope that can only be for this life. So of all people, we are most to be pitied. It makes more sense and is intellectually more honest to deny the possibility of the resurrection than to spiritualise and self-focus on what is clearly meant to be physical and Christ-focus. As Christians... What's important about our faith 
is not the intensity or the quality of our belief, as if what we believe doesn't really matter, as long as we're sincere and well-meaning. Christian faith, in one important sense, is not a religious claim, but a historical claim. It's an objective claim about the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe and we trust Jesus because he rose from the dead. In some ways, we're like the Apostle John. Have a look at verse 8. He's the other disciple that goes into the tomb after Peter. He sees the grave clothes and the empty tomb and he believes. And like John, we also believe, not because we've seen the risen Christ, we haven't. We believe because the evidence of the empty tomb is compelling and overwhelming. It's not the end of our faith, but the beginning. It's the beginning of a faith that needs to grow. It's not a faith that believes because it understands. It's a faith that begins to understand because it believes. As John says in verse 9, Though they saw and believed, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That came later when they went back to God's Word and read it again in the light of the resurrection. And that's what resurrection does. It changes everything. Not sure if Jesus is the Son of God, well, the resurrection confirms it. Not sure if Christ's sacrifice for our sins is acceptable to God, well, the resurrection guarantees it. Not sure if Christ is the only true Saviour, well, is the only one who rose from the dead. Not sure if death shall be destroyed and life shall be eternal, well, the resurrection makes it an absolute certainty. If we have died with him, then we shall certainly also live with him. And living with Christ Jesus is not just about an eternal life with him sometime in the future. The resurrection has implications that are transforming in the present. And that's the experience of all who have trusted the risen Christ. That's the experience of all who have looked to him for mercy and grace and the forgiveness of sins. And that's Mary Magdalene's experience as well. Have a look at verse 11. Mary's outside the tomb and she's weeping. She's a burdened woman. She's just lost the one she dearly loves. Perhaps she's also feeling betrayed because all her hopes in Jesus are now seemingly unfulfilled. Clearly Jesus hasn't risen in her heart. He's just missing and she thinks that someone has taken away the body of her Lord and she didn't know where he was. Perhaps also Mary Magdalene was fearful. Jesus had released her from seven demons. What assurance did she have without Jesus that demons would no longer trouble her? But Christ did come to her in her grief, her disappointment and her fear and he banished all those things 
He transformed her from broken and sorrowful to healed, restored and joyful. Restored to Mary is the assurance that the one whom she calls Rabboni has conquered sin and death. And though he shall ascend to his father, and indeed to Mary's father in heaven, to his God and indeed our God, he does not forsake us or leave us as orphans. Instead, he gives to us the gift of his Holy Spirit, who guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of we who are God's possession. And until that day, because we have died with Christ, our life is hidden with him and we're raised with him. And so we set our hearts and minds on things above. We put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. For when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also shall appear with him in glory. And though for now we do not, and we cannot, cling to him bodily, we do cling to him in faith. Like John, we know that the tomb is empty, and so we believe. Like Mary, who testifies to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, we too believe, and so we testify, that Christ is risen, just as he said. And what we have received, will we pass that on as of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures? That he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures? And that he appeared to Peter and all the apostles and then to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters in the faith? And because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Christ, a God, not only raised him from the dead, he also exalted him to the highest place. And so Christ Jesus, having all authority in heaven and on earth, well, he sends us, just as the Father sent him, to make disciples of all nations. And so we go, sent by Jesus, We baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and we teach obedience in all things that he's commanded us. For surely he is with us to the very end of the age. I'd like to finish by reading a real poem and not a gospel. And it's written by John Updike and it's called Seven Stanzas of Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindled, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths of fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same veiled heart that pierced, died with it, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. 
The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed.